Should we just tell the audience that you have a big announcement? You haven't made your announcement yet, have you? No, I don't think we. I don't think we've talked about it. Uh, but between this is important. Well, it's not really important to the show, although it might affect our productivity. <laughs> uh, we're having a baby. Chad and Becky are having a baby. Thanks. In between now and next episode. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's uh, like two weeks away. But um, you didn't like my little baby jingle? That was pretty good. Um, you know. It didn't seem like you prepared ahead of time. It seemed like kind of an off the cuff thing. So I didn't really feel like I needed to acknowledge it. These are just your your nerves talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I thought I would be more nervous. Uh, I'm not I'm not that nervous. Um You feeling even? I'm feeling pretty even. It's like how how hard can it be, you know? You'll do great. And uh, I can't wait to meet the baby. Yeah. We haven't seen you guys in so long. I know. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. What a weird year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Today was, uh, I think we're going to pass 20 million cases today. Or no, tomorrow. 3,000 deaths. Uh, there are nearly 200,000 new cases today. Welcome to the Zero Sum Empire COVID dashboard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's just my brain. My brain is just a COVID <laughs> dashboard now. <laughs> I had a moment of uh, digital nostalgia this week. I was digging through some boxes in the uh, attic and I found uh, my Motorola Droid uh, from 2010. Hmm. Uh, it was the first smartphone that I had. Um, and Whoa. Yeah, it was the one where you could, uh, like, it had a pop-out keyboard, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, because, like, some consumers, like me, were nervous that the the um, smartphone digital keyboards would not work well uh, and wanted a f- um, physical, mechanical keyboard. Uh, well, at the time, there were people like me that... that- that sort of like sweated the people with the external keyboards. So I didn't have an iPhone at that time. I just had the thing where you had to like hit the keys multiple times to get the letters you wanted. Yeah, I can't believe we did that. <laughs> so I got the phone started up and uh, I I got to look at old pictures from 10 years ago. Oh, wow. That's cool. Was I on there? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of you. It's very weird. It's like I'm not conscious of myself actually doing this. But it seems like I have exactly one picture of everybody I knew from that period. I think I just like <laughs> saved one picture of everyone and deleted the other ones. Well, you got to send it my way when you get a chance. Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640, mostly anonymous American billionaires. Two at a time. Hi, I'm Chad. And I'm Joe. And welcome back. Thank you for showing up once again or for the very first time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Thank you and welcome, everybody. If you showed up for last episode, you would have heard us promise that we were going to release this episode by New Year's. That has turned out to be a lie, as most things on the show turn out to be. We have developed a pretty strong track record for letting our audiences down. But it's close. We're going to be we're going to drop close to the deadline we set. 
Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll be we'll be in the ballpark. I think what we keep doing is setting public deadlines for ourselves to to try to hold ourselves to account, right? And getting things done by a certain time. Uh, you know, like saying it publicly puts more pressure on us, but it doesn't work. All it does is cause embarrassment and, uh, you know, and self-loathing. So, like, we should just stop doing that. But everything that I've ever accomplished has been the result of a fake deadline that I've blown. <laughs> <laughs> like, but we, we don't have to do it on air. Yeah. You know, we can do it privately. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything else that we need to talk about before we go into the news? I don't think so. Just uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah. Happy New Year, for sure. All right. Let's do the news. All right. Uh, today's news I'm calling International Corner. Uh, we we normally stick to <laughs> International Corner. Yeah, we normally stick to uh, news uh, about billionaires in the United States. But today uh, there there are a couple of interesting stories about international billionaires. the The first one, uh, the world's richest banker has died. He is a Brazilian guy. Wait a minute, you didn't tell me this. Did you? No, I, I don't think I told you about either of these stories beforehand. Well, uh, there, uh, there are three stories, but one of them the I did. The world's tell you about. richest banker? Yeah. <laughs> the world's richest banker is dead. Uh, he was Brazilian. His name is Joseph Safra, or was Joseph Safra. He was 82 years old. Not COVID related? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, there was no mention of that in any of the obituaries. I'd never heard of Joseph Safra, uh, so I read a list of 20 things you don't know about Joseph Safra that I found online. Anything about him. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally anything you say is something I don't know about <laughs> Joseph Safra. Uh, it said he loves reading old books. Okay. Uh, he leads a simple life. Good man. And he hires security personnel trained by Mossad to protect him. <laughs> so. Seems smart. He has a, a paramilitary force surrounding him um, that he gets uh, from the Mossad. Uh, he also earned, uh, he owned uh, the Gherkin Tower in London. Do you know the Gherkin Tower? It's that thing that, it's called the Gherkin Tower because people say it looks like a pickle, uh, but it doesn't. It looks like a football Christmas tree ornament, but I don't know it. they don't have footballs over there. So I think it, it didn't spring to mind, um, but I think any any American would say it's a building that's shaped like a football. I see, but it's also silver and shiny, like a like a Christmas tree ornament. Okay, and uh, so that's a it's a very famous building, a kind of uh, landmark of the London skyline. Safra came from old money, by which I mean really, really, really old money. Uh, his family got rich as money lenders operating on the camel based caravan trade routes running between Aleppo, Beirut, Alexandria, and Istanbul during the Ottoman Empire. So this Whoa. is like uh, 300 to 500 years ago. Uh, and um, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so his family created a kind of banking empire, you know, like half a millennium ago. And, and he, um, he and two brothers moved to Brazil He's Jewish. Uh, they moved to Brazil to escape uh, World War II, fascism. And uh, a couple of years before he died, uh, he was charged with bribing tax officials uh, to reduce his tax burden in Brazil, amounting to the sum of $1.8 billion. <laughs> so he, he cheated the Brazilian government of $1.8 billion. Wow. And uh, that was it was a couple of years before Bolsonaro was elected, I think three years before. And Bolsonaro has no interest in prosecuting 
uh, rich people for being tax cheats, I don't think. So uh, at some point, the charges against Stafford were dropped and uh, he got to die outside of prison. Um, the second story is from China, uh, and this is a this is a weird one. Have you, maybe you've heard about this. Uh, the Chinese billionaire Lin Qi, he was a gaming tycoon. He owned uh, what was it called? Yuzu Games. He uh, was poisoned to death by one of his work colleagues. <laughs> oh, I did see. This. You did see this, yeah. yeah. Um, Wait, is this is he also a executive producer yeah. on a Netflix show. So yeah, that's with the Game of Thrones people and all of that. Yeah, that's the big yeah. thing uh uh that he was currently working on. Uh it's an adaptation of a Chinese sci-fi trilogy called The Three Body Problem and the the two guys yeah. um um Benioff and Weiss, the guys who did Game of Thrones, uh were uh, I guess show running it and uh Lin Qi was an executive producer. I guess they must have met through HBO because Yuzu Games' biggest title was uh, Game of Thrones Winter is Coming. It was a a, a Game of Thrones game. Um, our last story is from the good old US of A. Uh, the defense spending bill that passed the House and Senate with veto-proof margins uh, includes the Corporate Transparency Act which will require all corporations and LLCs registered in the United States to disclose their real owners to the Treasury Department. It also includes already registered LLCs and corporations. So if you own an LLC or a corporation in the United States, you now have to disclose the real owner of that to the Treasury Department. Uh, the, the intention behind it is to make it more difficult for criminals to launder money and evade taxes. So... Seems like a good thing. It does seem like a good thing, but it is not nearly as good as it could be because uh, what I want to talk about are some carve outs uh, for rich people uh, that make mm. it basically irrelevant to their lives. Um, so, I mean, first of all, if you want to have an anonymous shell company in the United States, you still can. You just have to register it in like the Cayman Islands or Switzerland or something, uh, which, you know, doesn't make it appreciably harder for someone wealthy uh, to do. U.S. Shell companies are responsible for a lot of the real estate-based money laundering stuff that that we have been hearing so much about during the Trump era. Uh, basically, you know, somebody uh, who's very wealthy will buy real estate in the United States uh, using a shell company to mask who's really buying it, and then they will hold on to it as an asset and sell it later. And basically, you're laundering the money. You're using the shell company to launder the money through real estate sales uh, and sometimes rents and things like that. Unfortunately, the public will not have access to the information about who the real owners of these LLCs and corporations are. That was something that uh, people lobbied against. And the, you know, the thing that really takes any teeth out of the bill for for people like Donald Trump, right? Like uh, in the in the Washington Post story, in fact, like the the picture above, the picture below the headline is of Michael Cohen, right? Like because the most mm. well known sort of shell company thing is the Stormy Daniels payment, um, or at least the the most well known thing that's happened in the past year or so. I don't even know when that was. Maybe that was three years ago. I my I have no idea anymore. But any domestic investment fund that is advised and operated by a registered investment advisor is exempt from registration. So as far as I know, 
you could register to be an investment advisor, right? Like, I don't think that it requires any... Spe- it's not like being a medical doctor, right? Like, <laughs> or okay. being a lawyer. So this is like a pointless law to just make a headline, but it does nothing. Well, I mean, it might. So, uh, you know, some some Democrats like Sherrod Brown, I think is, is, you know, it's like some people are making the argument that, yes, it will do some good things to... Uh, make it more difficult for like human traffickers to, you know, deposit money to to get money that uh, uh, they make into the financial system. So it sounds like it's like it's a it's akin to, of course, everybody should be allowed to have automatic weapons and, you know, AK-47s are great, but we should ban bump stocks. Yes, exactly. It's exactly like that. Right. It it is a law that may have some marginal effect on some area of criminal activity, but does not at all address the largest concerns with uh, shell companies, which is that rich people get out of paying taxes uh, and hide assets and do all of these uh, shady things that we've been talking about for 28 episodes now. Uh, it has, it will have no effect on them at all. So Michael, uh, Michael Cohen will still be able to very easily pay off Stormy Daniels in the, in the future if he needs to, uh, even though this law exists. Well, that's sadly unsurprising, but thanks for the update. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen I'm Thinking of Ending Things? No. Um, that's the Charlie Kaufman movie, right? Yeah, it's the Charlie Kaufman thing. Yeah, I haven't seen it. It's weird. It's worth it's worth watching. I mention it now because a while ago I read a, a, a write-up in the Times about Jesse Plemons. You know Jesse Plemons. Uh, Todd from Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Landry. Landry from Friday Night Lights, yeah. Plemons stars in the film and in the piece in the times Plemons talks about the crazy journey of making the film, admitting that he was like utterly and completely confused about what he was doing there. (laughs) (laughs) that He really had no idea what Kaufman was trying to accomplish with the film. And then at a certain point he recalls going to dinner with Kaufman and his co-star David Thewlis. And at dinner, Thewlis asks Kaufman to explain the point of the film, asking him like point blank, like, what the fuck, man? What's this movie about? And and Kaufman basically responds like, "Eh, I don't really know, you know? And finally he lands on the line. Sometimes you just have to fail. (laughs) (laughs) And that's pretty much where I'm at with my my segment for today. <laughs> like, oh man! Sometimes you yeah, just have to fail. I mean, I feel like my research for this episode involved a series of false starts and dead ends. And there's there's like a actually a ton of stuff out there about the billionaires I'm covering, the Ziffs. But I've had <laughs> trouble making a meal out of anything. And one of the reasons for this is that the family is tangentially involved in some major stories that I'll talk some about here in a bit, but they're not really central figures in any of these stories. They're sort of like hover at the edges of drama 
but for the most part, somehow like remain apart from the fray. So, you know, my segment isn't all that focused today, but hopefully there'll be at least a few interesting things to talk about. Sound okay with you? We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So, okay. First of all, some background on the Ziffs. The Ziff fortune now resides in the hands of three brothers, Robert, Daniel, and Dirk. And each of them are <laughs> now worth Ziff. five, <laughs> worth about $5 billion. Uh, but the family fortune spans three generations at this point. The original fortune was amassed by William Sr., who founded the publishing company Ziff Davis, a publisher that came to be known for specializing in hobbyist magazines like cars and mechanics and electronics and aviation and that kind of thing. Oh, sure. And ultimately, it became a publishing house that focuses on technology. So you've heard of PC Magazine. That's right. Probably. That's a Ziff Davis publication. Okay. Did they do Nintendo Power? (laughs) I don't know. It's possible. They had a long list of publications. The company was founded in 1927, but in 1953, William Sr., Bill Sr. dies and Bill Jr. inherits the company. So Bill Jr. goes on to buy out his partner, Bernard Davis. And so then it's just a Ziff family company. And he successfully grows the company over the next several decades, focusing again on technology. So then fast forward to the early 90s, when the company is now worth over a billion dollars. And Bill Jr. actually thinks he's going to die. So apparently he was diagnosed with prostate cancer years earlier. And it's my understanding that he was like in a moment where he, th- he thought he didn't have very long to live. Hmm. Kind of a breaking so bad situation. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, he goes on to like live another 10 years or something, but in this moment in the nineties, exactly a breaking bad situation. (laughs) Yeah, actually in this moment, he wants to get his estate in order. And so he, he ideally wants to pass the company down to his boys, but Robert, Daniel and Dirk aren't interested in running a magazine company. So Bill Jr. Sells the company and then gives the kids a ton of money. And so then around the same time, they they have this big chunk of money. The brothers form Ziff Family Investments, which is a family office, which I'll talk Uh, a bit more about this later in the segment. I don't know why, like you want to, I don't want to do a magazine publishing empire. I want to start a family investment firm. That sounds so much more boring to me. I mean, I guess it is, but in a way it turned out to be kind of smart. Because they made a lot more money than they would have if they'd stayed in the publishing game. And, uh, you know, I think the heyday of Ziff Davis was during uh, Bell Jr.'s leadership. And then it sort of hit hard times right at the time when the brothers were playing the high finance game in a really successful way. So they got a lot more rich as a result of the family office that they formed. and. Also around this time, the brothers help establish uh, a hedge fund. They give seed money to the Wall Street big shot, Daniel Ock, to launch Ock Ziff Capital Management, <laughs> which 
becomes this well-known entity. Sounds like a troll clan or something. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I know I mentioned Oxif to you before the show, but before I mentioned anything about it, did, had you ever heard of Oxif before? Or is no, it totally new. Mm-hmm. So the Ziff family name is connected to at least two major news stories of the last decade. And one of these centers on the activities of Oxif Capital Management. So throughout the 90s, as I was saying, Oxif has a, was, a, was a pretty high profile player in the hedge fund industry. I'm not really sure how they fared earnings-wise relative to other hedge funds during this time, but I do know that the company went public in 2007, which resulted in like windfall profits for, for Daniel Ock and the Ziff brothers. So it, again, turned out to be a very good investment for the Ziff family. The thing that Ock Ziff is probably most famous for at this point is a scandal that erupted back in 2016 when it emerged that the company had been violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act by participating in conspiracies to bribe officials in several African nations, including Congo, Libya, Niger, and, of all countries, Chad. (laughs) (laughs) Unsurprisingly, the the bribes were geared toward obtaining mining rights for joint ventures that Oxif was involved in. So this is all very illegal and completely corrupt, and Oxif winds up settling with the DOJ for like over $400 million. And Daniel Locke steps down. The company changes its name to Sculptor Capital <laughs> Management. <laughs> so, so what do you think about that name, Sculptor? Uh, <laughs> I think it's pretentious and really annoying. They told their investors that they chose Sculptor because it invokes the dedication, persistence, and vision that embody what we strive for daily as stewards of your capital. Don't know what that means. Definitely curious to see why they picked that name. Maybe we'll get some more clarity as this goes on. Um, it's uh, it's definitely still a long name, <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe they're saying they can sculpt the market. I don't know what they're trying uh, to do. I'm glad that it's universally recognized as a really stupid name. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very stupid. So, but the company's uh, been so the company's been rebranding and working out uh, to to put out these like big fires. And among other things, this is kind of an interesting bit. In the last couple of years, Daniel Ock, he stepped down from the company, but he's also apparently had a major falling out with his protege at (laughs) Oxif, a guy named James Levin. What's your your job? I'm a protege at Sculpture. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. I, I mentioned this only because before given being given the responsibility of managing literally billions of dollars of Oxif capital, James Levin was literally Daniel Ox's son's water skiing instructor. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, That's what I was saying in the news. I think you can you can just sign up to be a financial advisor. I don't think that you need any qualifications. Well, I mean, so that's how he and Daniel Ock met. It's true that Levin 
does have a computer science degree from Harvard. But like, it's still just funny all the same. You know, it's just like, seriously, this is how this happens. <laughs> it's like, I don't it's know. probably how it happens way more often than, than most people suspect. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. What do the Ziffs really have to do with any of this? Uh, this whole bribery scheme? Probably not a lot, if anything at all. I spent an annoyingly long time trying to get to the bottom of this question. And I can't even figure out for certain whether they owned Oxif shares during the time of this bribery scandal. So they, they don't appear to own any sculptor shares now, and they dissolved their family office back in 2014. So my suspicion is they got out of Oxif before shit really hit the fan over there. But I can't say for sure, which is which is weird, just given the fact that the company is named after this family. Right. I mean, you'd yeah. think that it would be easier to track down this sort of basic information, but it's not. The second major news story that the Ziffs are connected to is, weirdly, the infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting when Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort met with the well-connected Russian lawyer Natalia Vyselnetskya in the hopes of getting dirt on Hillary Clinton, which everybody <laughs> has heard about at this point. Yeah. But like, I don't know how many people the know. The, I, the I, I've never heard this. I felt like uh, at that time I was following this stuff pretty closely. Uh, I never, I never knew that the Ziffs were involved. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, again, they're like ancillary figures in this whole story. Um, and the, the story is way more complicated than we need to get into to here and I'm guessing many of our listeners are already familiar with the broad strokes of this event anyway but very briefly my understanding is that this meeting was basically a convergence of two very different uh, agendas on one side Vyselnitska was motivated by a desire to overturn the Magnitsky Act I'll talk a second about this. You you know the deal with the Magnitsky Act? Uh, basically, the Magnitsky Act is that anybody who is Russian and appears on a certain list uh, is a persona non grata when it comes to uh, dealing with American financial institutions. So, yeah, I mean, I think that might be a upshot of it. I think the general the general law is even broader. It's not specifically just Russians. But the inspiration for it was. Russian oligarchs, right? Right. Yeah. You can freeze their bank assets here in the United States. You can prevent them from entering the country, you know, penalize them in all these sorts of ways. But it, it came about because of this incident in Russia. So Sergei Magnitsky was a tax advisor to Bill Browder, whose name you'll have heard in the news for the last several years. He was the founder of Hermitage Capital Management. Browder resides in the UK, but historically he did a lot of business in Russia. and. People, people know like crazy shit went down in Russia in the in the eighties and nineties, and in the nineties, I think he made a lot of money there. And, and so, at, at a certain point, which it's weird because Browder had been a big champion of Putin, sort of early on, but at a certain point, Putin winds up raiding Browder's business, going into the Hermitage Capital Moscow office, seizing a ton of documents accusing Hermitage of tax evasion. So 
we know that Browder was trying to avoid paying taxes all over the place at all costs. It's one of his main preoccupations. But when you look at this particular situation, while he was doing some tax evasive things, the evidence really suggests this was like a, a strong arm type situation where Putin basically goes in, seizes Hermitage's a- assets, and then redistributes them to his cronies. Mm-hmm. So Browder, in an attempt to react to all of this, hires Magnitsky to help him navigate this very treacherous legal situation. And so Magnitsky is a very bright lawyer. He helps Hermitage file these complaints about the raid. Soon after, Magnitsky is arrested. Then not long after that, he, he dies in prison. Obviously, the, the, the result of abuse by prison guards. So in response to this event, Browder really lobbies hard to get some legislation passed to, to respond to events like this. And the Magnitsky Act was passed, which, again, allows U.S. government to sanction people who pull this kind of shit. And like, since this is precisely the kind of shit that Putin loves to pull, the law naturally infuriates him. And so like, long story short, while Vyselnitska isn't like a super high level official or directly connected to Putin, uh, we, can, we can pretty much assume that at, at some level she's lobbying against the Magnitsky Act yeah. in this meeting she's a on, on Putin's yeah. behalf. Yeah. So, okay. Meanwhile... On the other side, Manafort, Kushner, and Donald Trump Jr. just went dirt on Hillary. And they think Wieselnetska can offer that. Why? Well, this is where the Ziffs come in. <laughs> <laughs> the Ziffs were also doing business in Russia with Browder. Meanwhile, the Ziffs had donated a certain amount of money to Hillary and the DNC. And the Trump team was trying to put together some sort of evidence that. Russian money was being funneled to the Hillary campaign and that the Ziffs were maybe somehow involved. Hmm. And so that's what they were like pressing Vyselnitska about in this in this infamous Trump Tower meeting. Turned out to be wishful thinking, a totally weird goose chase. In the end, the meeting didn't yield any actionable intel for Trump, but the the Ziffs were kind of just strangely insignificant players in a major international news event. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pivot now and just talk for like one or two minutes about family offices, which is a topic that I actually, for those of you who listen, brought up last episode, but didn't have time to cover. I was covering the the, the Santo Domingo family and they had a a family office. And I said at the time, we'd have a chance to discuss family offices again in the future. Little did I know that an opportunity would arise like immediately, but we pulled Ziffs and and they have one. So I mentioned that the brothers formed their family office in the 90s, but real quick, what's a family office? I don't think you'd ever heard of of this this concept before I mentioned the topic to you last episode, had you, Chad? No. Uh Uh-uh. I, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that there was like a legal entity called a family office. Yeah. Well, that's because you don't hang out with billionaires all the time. (laughs) If you did. I mean, because like only billionaires basically have them. Mm -hmm. So very, very simply, family offices are wealth management firms owned and run by individual families, but not just any families, exceedingly wealthy families. Basically, at a bare minimum, 
to run just a sketchy fly-by-night family office, you need like a hundred million to get it off the ground. Uh, like I think to have like a solid, sort of respectable family office, you want to like start at maybe five hundred million. And so, what do they yeah. do? Are they like hedge funds, but only blood relatives can invest in it, or are they like a venture capital firm? Like, what do they do? They do all of the above. They they are ways of consolidating wealth in the family and cutting out any sort of middle men. They can make their own moves and the, they leverage their own capital the way they, they see fit. The same way a hedge fund might, um, mm -hmm. but they don't have to deal with giving their money to anybody else or not knowing necessarily what's going on with their money at any given point in time. So mm. the, the family offices are not a new thing. And when you read about the history of them, people like really like to point out that John D. Rockefeller set up his family office back in the late 19th century. And this was modeled off of family offices that existed in Europe before that. But the number of family offices has been steadily growing in recent decades, like remarkably so. And, and this fact is a reflection, very obviously, of increasing wealth consolidation across the planet. So like mm -hmm. among other things, family offices give ultra wealthy families even greater privacy when it comes to their financial transactions. And this can be advantageous for several different reasons. We know that. Yeah, so that's, that's what I was wondering. If there are special laws that protect blood relatives from disclosing information publicly that wouldn't be protected under somebody that you enter into a contract with you're not related to like like yeah. what's the specific advantage of having a family office i don't know the laws but i do know <laughs> that there are specific advantages related to privacy and confidentiality you can get away with like more opacity in a family office than you can if you were to sort of give your money to a to hedge fund or invest in private equity or or something like that. But the problems that arrive with family offices are similar to the problems we, we face with hedge funds, which is, you know, like when enormously powerful financial institutions are allowed to maneuver more or less in secret, we create environments that are very hospitable to insider trading. So, but, but with the, again, with the family office, rich families are cutting out middlemen, managing all their own assets themselves and that allows individual families as like a distinct entity to exert even more control in the marketplace. Like families can make decisions that will affect markets in ways that they, they couldn't if they were just in, invested in one financial instrument or another. So basically we're heading toward, with a growing number of family offices, we're basically heading toward a kind of like 14th century Italy uh, uh, family-run uh, city-state kind of, kind yeah. of thing in the United States, right? Like, it's, like Nashville yeah. is owned by Jimmy Haslam, the, the Haslam, the, the Haslamichis. Right. It's not just the United States, it's across the planet. But yes, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, that's kind of my point. I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say about family offices, but I guess I just wanted people to sort of know that they exist 
and that they're just another way that ultra wealthy families are working to to like concentrate and exert oligarchic control over the planet and that they need to be regulated yeah, right um i didn't even talk about these brothers at all and i'm and i'm kind of running out of time so I, I, i'll just float out one or two pieces of amusing trivia did you know that dirk ziff is the owner of the world surf league <laughs> of course you knew that right <laughs> but the guy who owns the world surf league should be named dirk uh dirk ziff dirk surf yeah that seems right do you know what else he's the owner of i'm dropping this i'm dropping this in the chat he's part owner of the cherokee plantation just take a second to watch this not trailer a, not a great name oh so gross the piece of property that you're looking at this piece of property was once home to over 500 slaves, but now it's a no, golf they kept course. kept the name Plantation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a golf cool. course called Cherokee yeah. Plantation that charges a million dollars to join for the initial membership and then $85,000 a year to maintain the membership. So there's that. I hope they're all haunted by ghosts. All right, man. We got to rate these guys now. So I have no basis for rating them. I, I, they're so mysterious to me. I know. Um, it seems like they're involved in a bunch of shady things. Definitely the Cherokee plantation. That's just a concrete data point that like we can use to push them up the scale. But I, I, <laughs> it, it's only Dirk. I, I think for lack of a better sense of all of this, I have to go five. That's just sort of like a middle of the road feeling there's a lot of potential there's a lot of potential for for darkness in in the ziff life uh but it's hard to discover what the extent of it actually maybe is. five's too much maybe maybe we have to go on what we have maybe it's like a three or a four yeah i think i'm more comfortable with that Five isn't neutral right like like zero one is neutral <laughs> yeah so yeah, I, I could go three or four. Let's give him a 3.5. <laughs> we haven't done a 0. 0.5 in a while. Have we ever? Mm-hmm. All right, let's do I can't it. remember we'll, we'll, who. Somebody got a 0. 0.5. All right, Ziffs, we're giving you guys a All right, Chad. So uh, I did my part. What do you got for us today? Uh, I'm covering Scott Cook. Uh, he is the founder of Intuit, uh, and they make Quicken, QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint. Intuit. Did you do Oracle last I did. time? Yeah. Was it last time mm -hmm. you did Oracle? It just seems like Intuit and Oracle not the same. Are part of us? I understand they're not the same, <laughs> but they just seem like. Part of a similar genus. Yeah, we're not really the target audience for the products that they make, but they're but they're very large. Although TurboTax, I'm sure. Have you used TurboTax? Uh, I I personally have not used TurboTax, but I know that it's a thing. Yeah, yeah, I have. In fact, we usually use it. Um. So before uh before Scott Cook uh founded Intuit, he worked for Bain Capital, uh, the large private equity company uh, you may be familiar with from. 
uh, such famous people as Mitt Romney. Romney. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he, uh, Cook stepped down as Intuit CEO in, I think, 1999, uh, but he's still chairman of the board. There is actually, a he's one of these people, there is a ton of stuff out there about him. Uh, in fact, if you look on YouTube, there are a whole bunch of videos of Scott Cook talking, but like they're incredibly boring. It's just <laughs> Scott Cook telling the same story of the founding of Intuit over and over and over. And he has this in different contexts, like different interviews. Or yeah. Different, like, yeah, it'll be like a videos. tech crunch uh, yeah. talking to a guy on a bench and then it'll be in a more formal setting, like at a university or something like it's all over the place. And uh, just the same story, the same story over and over again. And he has this incredible self-discipline where he, never, from what I can tell, expresses a view on anything other than he values entrepreneurship. Like, it, I mean, like it's, I, I wanted to find him saying, you know, some weird uh, billionaire stuff, but like, I couldn't do it. I mean, is that, is that baked into the culture of entrepreneurship to, to keep it value free? Uh, maybe, but, but he has kind of a reputation for, for being Ex excessively soft-spoken and playing it close to the vest and really being boring. Uh, he is a, he is a boring, boring guy. This is, so I have a story about how boring he is. Okay. The New York times used to run a series called in my ellipsis, like in my dot, 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 which was this like puff piece series on rich people. It was written by David K. Johnston. And he was a guy who did like really good journalism on uh, wealth inequality and tax evasion and, and, and subjects that we're both interested in. Uh, but now he's like one of these guys that they bring onto MSNBC to yell about Trump. But he was the one who wrote this back in the 90s. And so the headlines would be like, in my dot, dot, dot briefcase or in my dot, dot, dot suitcase. And uh, and honestly, actually, I couldn't find any other ones besides those. I think there might have only been three installments of it. But um, but the third one was in my dot, dot, dot backpack uh, featuring Scott Cook. And it's a really short article. It's only like 400 words or so. And most of it is about Cook's business career. And the uh, when they get to the the interesting part, uh, the so-called interesting part at the end, the last paragraph is what he carries around in his backpack. And that's that's where like the, the person who's being interviewed is supposed to like give the reporter something interesting and, and unique uh, to provide some perspective or dimension of their character or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Cook listed that he carried a Palm Pilot, a calculator, a wallet. And an extra battery for his laptop. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, and it's like, I think that the quirky thing was supposed to be the calculator because his laptop would have already had a calculator. So, like it, it was unclear. Like that's that's all that there was, right? Like. And then the article just ends. Like there's no like elaboration. Boo. Uh, yeah, right. Just like the most boring possible thing. So I don't have too much to say about his personality as a billionaire. We have a local connection. Uh, he's married to a woman named Sinya Otsby. And she was a business professor at UW-Madison uh, for a long time. Oh, really? And they founded... Yeah, together they founded the Center for Product and Brand Management that's part of the business school there. Um, they made a big donation. Oh, I'll go down there and check it out. Yeah, see if they're hanging out there. 
They were in the news recently for signing the Giving Pledge. Good for them. They uh, they released a letter, actually, that's published on the Giving Pledge website uh, when they did it. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, the Giving Pledge is the thing that billionaires are doing to say, like, uh, upon our death, we're going to donate uh, the majority of our fortune to charitable causes and or research. It seems like a lot of people are doing uh, donations to startups and entrepreneurs and, and things like that now, which kind of seems sort of beside the point <laughs> of the giving pledge. Donations to their family offices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, and this is like, and I'm bringing this up because this is the only place where I found Scott Cook, like articulating an opinion on something uh, or an idea. And it was a line in this letter that is like a big kind of red flag that they're Evo psych people. Uh, it says they, it, it says in the letter, we believe that social entrepreneurs will drive progress on the great challenges of our time. By supporting talented entrepreneurs, we are exploring how natural behavioral incentives can be turned into engines of social progress. So I, I, I'm not exactly sure what they mean by natural behavioral incentives. I do. Um, I know what they're saying. What are they saying? <laughs> they're saying people have hunger to survive. That's like part of our DNA. And if you can channel that into an entrepreneurial spirit that somehow focuses uh, focused on like social problems, then that is the fuel that will help propel humanity to a better future. Yeah, I think that's basically right. Like uh, to me, I, I would maybe frame it like a little bit differently. To me, it sounds like they buy into the bonkers and incorrect assumptions that neoclassical economics makes about human beings, which is that they are profit, profit maximizers and cost minimizers it, with the hope of engineering social progress in a very Ayn Randy type way. Like, uh, oh, if we, we can engineer society in such a way that people following their own rational self-interest will lead to the best of all possible worlds, right? Like, uh, it, it's it's incredibly standard fare for the billionaire mindset. But, you know, like I said, that's as close as I could come to finding Scott Cook articulating a view on something. So he's still chairman of Intuit, but it seems like he, he and his family just kind of kick it in this small town uh, near Silicon Valley called Woodside, California. Population five thousand two hundred eighty-seven people, median income two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They have a in this town of five thousand people a Michelin-starred restaurant. It is a town entirely run by and for horse enthusiasts. Hmm. It's like a tiny horse oasis, not tiny horse oasis, but a tiny horse oasis. All three of his children are professional equestrians. <laughs> <laughs> and that is uh, somehow a job. Somehow you can be a professional horse person. One of the sons, Carl, is a is a pretty well known equestrian, and he rides a horse owned by his mom. You know, it's like a little family. It's like a family office, but instead of doing investments, they um, do horses. But they're they don't they don't race them. They're just they're just doing the equestrian stuff. 
No, it's the jumping. Yeah, right. Um, but it's, it's strictly like it's one the, thing or the other thing. They're not involved in the racing side. They're not in ra- the, no. They're not involved in the racing side. Um, and uh, and Carl uh, is actually married to Kaylee Cuoco, the actress from The Big Bang Theory. Huh. Yeah. Uh, apparently, she she was a horse girl, and he was a horse boy. And the remember rest the McGarcos? <laughs> I feel like there was some horses with the McGarcos. We haven't had a lot of horse billionaires. I remember. I remember the film of the mother riding the horse to the carousel that was filled with fake horses. <laughs> Which I think got removed so from yeah. the internet afterwards. <laughs> it got removed from the internet after he found out about our podcast and I think became embarrassed and uh, then took his film. We don't have evidence that. that he actually found out about the podcast, but he probably it's saw it. too hit. much of a coincidence to... Uh, he definitely got a Google alert about his name and, uh, <laughs> and, and heard us making fun of him. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that's their their sort of brush with uh with uh, celebrity is that that Carl's married to Kaylee Cuoco. Uh I don't know how to say that. I don't I you know, like I looked at it a little bit and and there's really not much to say. You know, they have goofy Instagram pictures and stuff like that, but like I, I don't care. That doesn't seem about very that. interesting. Um, Signia Otsby has a she has a Pinterest page. Uh so like if you this is how little these people are in the press. Like, so if you Google Sinya Otsby, uh, who is a billionaire, it's like result number five is like her Pinterest page. She has a Pinterest page. That's more than a lot of these people. Yeah. You know, she likes um, alpaca yarn for knitting, DIY projects, a lot of ideas for decorations to cottage bathrooms, uh, beach houses, ranches, and just regular house stuff. Honestly, Chad, it sounds like you'd really get along with her. I probably, I, you know, like in a, in a certain context, I could, you know, we could talk about, uh, you know, DIY projects. <laughs> she does have a section called Books Worth Reading that has zero pins in it. So I, uh, <laughs> I appreciated that. Um, anyway, that I like I'm struggling, you know, like that's all I have to say about them as uh, human beings. There's not a lot of information out there. Par for the course as far as we go. It is pretty much pretty much par for the course uh, with, with these folks. Uh, but the, the biggest story with uh, Intuit just happened recently, just last year. And, and, and a lot of listeners probably have heard about this because it has been extensively reported. It, uh, it started with an investigation by ProPublica uh, last year, and it was so ridiculous and just so dumb uh, and annoying that it got covered by like every mainstream news outlet. You know, it was even a segment on the Hassan Minaj show on Netflix, uh, uh, Patriot Act. Uh, it was a subject of a reply all podcast. It, you know, it was kind of like everywhere for a minute. And so I'm not going to spend too much time with it, but I'm going to do a quick explainer just because there's some, it comes along with some practical advice for listeners. Uh, as Yeah, explain it. I, I, I know no, none of this, so I'm interested. Okay. So the issue uh, with Intuit revolves around a website design practice called dark patterns. Dark patterns are tricks that websites use to get you to do things that you don't really want to do like sign up for something or buy something or, you know, get locked into some sort of process. Uh, The guy who coined the term Harry Brignall 
uh, runs a website called darkpatterns.org that kind of catalogs these. And I wanted to play a quick clip from a video that they made. I'm just going to play the audio because I think you can you can sort of understand it. Dark patterns are features of interface design crafted to trick users into doing things that they might not want to do, but which benefit the business in question. Here's an example. Have you ever tried to delete your Amazon account? Here's the Amazon homepage. What's the first thing you might think to do? The obvious place to look is the account dropdown here. Once you're in here, you look around, it's a lot of information, but if I'm interested in deleting my account, I think that your account is probably a good place to go. Once I'm on this page, there's a lot more information, payment options, login and security, and a bunch of stuff down here. Unfortunately, you could click every link on your account page, but none would deliver you to a place where you could actually delete it, because it's not here. In order to actually delete your Amazon account, you have to go all the way down to the bottom of the page, and under let us help you, click help. Once you're in here, you have to navigate to need more help because, you know, putting it on this page would just be too easy. Then click contact us. This is where it starts to get ridiculous. It's still nowhere to be seen, but of the four options on the top that you want help with, click prime or something else. You want the something else. In this, tell us more about your issue dropdown. There's still nothing that suggests account deletion. You just have to know to click login and security. And then in a second dropdown, there it is the magic button, close my account. Except in order to actually do that, you now have to have a chat conversation with an Amazon associate who's gonna tell you all the reasons account deletion is a bad idea. See, you can't delete the account yourself. They have to do it for you. This is a dark pattern, a crappy user experience that intentionally makes it difficult, almost impossible without help, to do something that hurts Amazon. This is the dark side of user experience design, just creating a user experience that's impossible rather than gratifying or easy to use. Exactly. And and Intuit basically created the granddaddy of all dark patterns uh, to hide a specific product that they make from customers. You might wonder, why would you hide one of your products from customers? Well, it was a special product that TurboTax was mandated by the U.S. government to offer. It's called TurboTax Freedom. That's what they branded it. And if you make under $66,000 a year, that means you can file your taxes using TurboTax for free. So listeners- But they hide it so you can't find it so that all these people are paying for it anyway? That's right. That's so sketchy. I mean, another another way of thinking about this is that it's like the fine print of user experiences or user interface. It's, just, it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit like that, but like intensified heavily. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. So it might seem also seem strange that Intuit was mandated to offer uh, this free version of their program by the government. Uh, government usually doesn't interfere with private enterprise in that way, but they the mandate happened because Intuit lobbied the government to pass a law requiring them to offer a free version of their program. And that they would then the reason, intentionally hide? Yes. Yes. So the reason that they did that was that the, they didn't want the IRS to create an easy and free way to file your taxes online. And so they lobbied the government to say, we we promise wow. never to create a digital filing system for U.S. taxpayers if 
TurboTax will offer a free version for anybody who makes on and the numbers are different, but but the number in the class action lawsuit against TurboTax that I found is sixty six thousand dollars, which is more than seventy percent of U.S. citizens. That's right? so devious, right? And so, like, the thing about people who make under sixty six thousand dollars a year are the people who are going to use TurboTax. Like, the people who are making more than sixty six thousand dollars a year are. I assume much more likely to get a professional to file their taxes, right? Like that right. they have a lot of money and more complicated taxes. So they're just going to hire someone to do it. Almost everybody who actually would use TurboTax falls within the the bracket of people who are eligible to file their taxes for free using TurboTax. Um, so this presents a problem. <laughs> Not only is there a dark pattern making it hard to find the free version, there's no marketing, obviously. There's no, no. there's no way no. that you would know unless you were on some Reddit forum, you know, where you're actively seeking out this information. You've heard about it. And then somebody tells you that there's like 52 moves that you need to pull and then you can finally. That's open exactly up right. The, yeah. The, yeah. I see. Um, yeah, I mean, no, that's that's a hundred percent correct. Um, but it's even worse than that. Like, what they did was they created a so they created the product that they were mandated to make, and they called it TurboTax Freedom. And then they put it on a web page, and they included code in the web page to instruct Google to not list it in search results in this kind of anti search engine optimization you know, thing, right? So you, you can't find it. And the only way to find it still is to do some sort of online YouTube tutorial in which someone walks you through how to find it. So they named their main product that they sell TurboTax free. So, so the TurboTax free file, and you may have seen commercials for this, like TurboTax free file is a different product and that one, and it costs money than TurboTax Freedom, which is free, but they're the same thing. But they hide freedom. If you Google TurboTax free or free file to any combination of search terms that you put in that has TurboTax and free in it, you're going to get TurboTax free file, which is the program that you have to pay for. It is so sketchy. Yeah, it's very bad. Um, and not only that, so, so they spent $100 million dollars doing ads uh, like this that some of you may have heard. Free, 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 free. Free, 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 free. Free, 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 free. Free, 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 free. Free, 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 free. That's right. TurboTax Free is free. Free, 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 free. Free edition product only for simple U.S. returns. Offer subject to change. See details at TurboTax.com. Okay, so that that was a radio spot that they played. They also had a million TV commercials and all that stuff. That product is not free. Like, that if, if you go to the TurboTax, if you, like, Google TurboTax, if you Google TurboTax free, anything, right? It takes you to this site uh, that says you can file your taxes for free using TurboTax here. There is one condition under which you can actually sort of jump through the hoops and file for free using that, which is that if you're only filing one W-2, you're a single person filing a W-2 
and you have no other anything. You have no debt. You have no credit card or, or not credit card, but like you have no uh, student debt. You have no like anything that you have to enter in your taxes, right? Like you just, it's just, it's just one W-2 from one job. And, and that's, is it the, so like in under that incredibly strict condition that almost no one qualifies for, the TurboTax free program will allow you to file federal for free, but otherwise it it does not. What? Yeah. Like what happens is like people will go on, will find this. So they would have heard, oh, the government mandated that you can file your taxes for free. And so you go onto the, the TurboTax site and you're like, oh, cool. Uh, this is the free one. But then you you start to do it and you realize, oh, it's only if you meet these conditions. Oh, I guess that the government program was only if you meet these conditions. And I don't meet those. So I guess it's not free. So, okay, well, it's still pretty cheap. I'll buy it. Or you, you know, like uh, maybe you've you've entered all of your information because it doesn't tell you right away that you have to pay. It makes you enter your information first, right? Maybe you're like, ah, fuck it, you know. I've already I've already gone this far, right? Like uh, I'll just pay the fee, and and uh, I'm not sure that there's another product out there that's going to let me file for free. So like whatever, I just want to get this done. It's a hassle. What so like whatever, you know? Like there are a million reasons why people think that there's a free product, and they find the not free product, and then they end up paying for the not free product. What I'm just like tripping out on is just like the mind games element of it and how like corporations get away. I mean, this is a very obvious point that a million people have made a million times before, but the corporations get away with stuff that human beings absolutely could not. I mean, can you imagine like yeah, yeah. if your if your neighbor was behaving this way? It's like you asked to borrow your neighbor's hammer and they're like, sure. Yeah. I'll leave yeah. it in my mailbox and you go, go out and check out their mailbox and there's like a screwdriver there and you're like, Hmm, you text them. What's up? <laughs> or you take the hammer and they say, if you don't pay me $40, I will burn your house down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all leading to that. <laughs> that's, yeah, the, yeah. that's the end game of the story I was trying to tell. I'm going to start running dark patterns on my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> It's insane. It's insane behavior. Like yeah. no, like so it's sociopathic. Yeah, completely insane. If a human being, you're right. You're exactly right. If a human being acted in that way, they would be committed to a hospital because it is not acceptable. Anyway, there's a class action lawsuit. People are trying to get their money back. Congress people have spoken out about it. Elizabeth Warren uh, is a, a prominent one. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's going through the courts. Uh, but I did want to talk about one last thing today uh, that <clears throat> just to kind of get back to the main themes of the show. And it is it's related to Intuit because Intuit's main product was not a tax filing software, but it was Quicken, uh, a bookkeeping uh, software program. And uh, and so the exciting topic that I want to talk about in the last segment uh, here is uh, double entry bookkeeping. Uh, oh. I'm sure you're all on the edge of your seat, uh, ready to hear about the exciting world of bookkeeping and accounting. Double entry bookkeeping is old, is it not? It's a Renaissance technology. Uh, it was invented a very long time ago, but it didn't become standardized uh, until the Industrial Revolution. The argument that I want to make is is about how seemingly mundane techniques like double entry bookkeeping can have profound ideological effects 
And this argument specifically about double entry bookkeeping goes back a hundred years to the work of Max Weber, uh, who some of you may be familiar with, and mm-hmm. Werner Zumbart, uh, who I assume most of you have never no heard of. No one has ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, well, you know, there's a good reason. Um, he was a he was a German Marxist scholar. He was quite well known in his day. Uh, the reason you probably haven't heard of Werner Zombart is that he made a very bad career move later in life. Uh, you want to take a guess what it was? I have no idea. Uh, he became a Nazi. Um, that, and uh, yeah, that's a very that, bad career move. Yeah, one of the worst you can do. You know, he like he kind of became a Nazi. It's a it is a little bit unclear. Like he was probably less of a Nazi than than Heidegger was. Um, but he did write a book called The Jews and Modern Capitalism, uh, which is not a title that has a good ring to it. It was intended to be like a companion piece to uh, Weber's uh, Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. So it was like it was sort of supposed to be about like religion. I haven't read it, but like just it's a it's a bad look and it and it smells bad enough. And, and Zombart is is not important enough to an intellectual history that anybody has tried to like rub the stink off of his corpse. You know, it's like weird that like Heidegger, I mean, I, I mean, I realized that like there's a lot of antipathy toward his stature in the Academy today, but he still persists. You know, these people still persist. He was a powerful thinker, right? Like, I mean, he was, he was a person whose ideas, the, the sheer force of his ideas uh, are something that one has, has to, reckon with if you're doing philosophy, right? Like Zombart is not really in that class of thinker, right? So like, it's not that Martin Heidegger gets an excuse for being a Nazi, but people have to like think about the fact that Martin Heidegger was a Nazi. You can just forget about Zombart. Like you can just be like, ah, you know, screw that guy. We'll just talk about Max Weber. Like, because he sort of had the same idea, right? Like, uh, um, Uh, but the reason that I bring him up is because, like, he's the person who is most responsible for articulating this idea. And it's sort of like one of those things where, like, Weber clearly had the idea first, but Zombart, but he didn't, like, Weber didn't, like, work through it and articulate it in a very clear way. And so Zombart was like, oh, that's a good idea. And then he just sort of ran with it and, and was more explicit about it. And so the reason I bring it up is because I wanted to read a couple of quotes uh, later on. Well, the idea basically is that. The development of double entry bookkeeping as the standard way of keeping business accounts was absolutely essential to the development of modern capitalism. Like these guys argue that modern capitalism could not have developed without double entry bookkeeping as the universal language of business. So, uh, like, it's a like a necessary precondition, right, for capitalism, like sort of post-industrial revolution capitalism to happen. Glo- so I'm interested. Keep talking. Make make the point. So how? Okay. So uh, a little bit of background. Marx uh, drew our attention, of course, to exchange value as a universal equivalent in capitalism. The reason that a capitalist economy can work is because everything can be translated into this universal language of exchange value. I can say one pound of iron is worth 10 pounds of linen when we're thinking about these things in terms of their exchange value in the market. Uh, When I have the universal equivalent of money, I can say both the iron 
and the linen are worth $20. So like the ideological effect of exchange value is that it abstracts commodities from the labor that created them. Like labor itself becomes a commodity that's indistinguishable in terms of exchange value from wheat or iron. A bushel of wheat has to be grown and picked and bundled and then transported by human beings. But when it enters the marketplace, we say it's worth $20. It's destiny, and that says it's controlled by the capitalists, not by the workers who produced it. But the reason each of these items is uh, is worth what it's worth is because of the labor power that went into producing them. So the harder, you know, the harder something is to make, the more it's worth, like generally speaking. Uh, but that labor as the, the generative force and source of value in a commodity gets obscured in the marketplace. Like as a consumer, we sort of only confront the price. Uh, workers receive wages in return for their labor. And this labor is also translated into the universal language of exchange value. Um, and so like, you know, I just want to sort of like get that concept on the table. We're not going to like delve into Marx's theory of alienation or anything like that here. We just want to point out that for Marx also, one of his most central points is that the universal medium of exchange has to exist for capitalism to operate. And so what Weber and Zambart pick up on and this is like this is very obvious, but it's very, it's funny, right? Like, but what what Weber and Zomber pick up on is that for you, the universal equivalent to function at any scale, like larger than a farmer's market, you have to have a reliable system for writing it down. And so, capitalist enterprise requires not only a universal language, but a you know a universal equivalent of exchange. But a universal, a universalized way of keeping track of that language, and that's where double entry bookkeeping comes in. So, what is double entry bookkeeping? It's just the system. You you all know what it is. It's just the system of entering debits and credits to accounts that's used universally in every business every day. Uh, the phrases "in the black" and "in the red," you know, which you may have heard, uh, refer to the two columns of debits and credits or expenditures and income. Uh, in double entry bookkeeping. It was invented in Italy in the 13th century, uh, but as I said a moment ago, it did not become universalized until the Industrial Revolution. And so, you know, the idea is that in order for capitalism to work at scale, to operate at a large scale, you need to have a system of keeping track of credits and debits that can be read by different parties, understood by different parties, and that is double entry bookkeeping. So on one level, it seems like we're talking about something very obvious. Like, mm-hmm. yes, we need to keep track of the transactions in order to be able to conduct commerce. There used to be a whole bunch of cacophony of techniques for doing that. And they were mostly narrative accounts that were up to the owner or manager's own sort of like way of thinking and writing. So they would be like, Joe gave me 20 cows and I gave him 20,000 bales of hay in return for those 20 cows. It was a good deal. And I hope to get that deal next year. It's a depersonalized, seemingly objective way of keeping accounts. Another way to say this is that that Zambart and and Weber uh, uh, look at the standardization and universalization of double entry bookkeeping 
as the thing that unlocked the full potential of capitalism, right? Uh, Zombart writes, quote, the very concept of capital is derived from this way of looking at things. One can say that capital as a category did not exist before double-entry bookkeeping. Through double-entry bookkeeping, possibilities and stimulants were created so that ideas inherent in the capitalistic economic system could come to full development. The ideas of acquisition and economic rationalism. I'm just wondering, I mean, this, this has to be thought about in terms of a larger matrix of standardization, right? I mean, like, if double-entry yeah. bookkeeping is one axis... The standardization of time is another axis or something, you know, it's like- absolutely. And I think that's another necessary precondition, right? Like, you know, there's there's not a single necessary precondition to capitalism taking place, but double entry bookkeeping is one of them or or at least a standardized and universalized system of keeping track of keeping account. And and double entry just happened to become this thing. It was very simple and straightforward uh, in which. Everything that exists and has value in a business can be translated into a mark in a ledger, and anyone can read that. Labor, raw materials, sale prices, machines, rents, and like everything else, right? Like every other aspect of a business can be translated in this, this language of quantification. And so the, the ledger became this kind of seemingly objective oracle that would dictate the course of a business. So this is where the story takes a, a left turn, right? Like, okay, we can sort of understand what these, you know, old timey guys are saying about this. But later scholars who were building on the work of Weber and Zambart found that while their argument makes sense in theory, in practice, bookkeeping was an incredibly messy process that although the theory of double entry bookkeeping was universal in practice, it was it depended a lot on who was keeping the books as it does today. Uh, historians of accounting will point out that like there's no such thing as a book that is not cooked in the sense that you cannot reduce every aspect of a business to uh, an objectively quantified piece of data, right? Like that, the estimates and projections are all over the place. Uh, not to mention cooking intentionally, not to mention like intentional manipulation of ledgers to benefit the interests of the people who are writing the books, the people who are telling the people who write the books what to write in the books, right? That happens all the time. And so- there's a second argument sort of like built on top of this other one, which is that despite the messiness of real world bookkeeping, double entry bookkeeping still functions as an extremely powerful ideological tool. And that, like this is the part that I find really interesting. And I'll read a quote here uh, as, as one article puts it. We'll, we'll put the, the link in the notes. Uh, quote, the legitimating myth of rational structure is a form of rhetoric used to convince various audiences of the rationality of an enterprise. As such, it is useful in different ways than those suggested by more literal interpretations. Double entry was certainly a legitimating myth for business, one with important symbolic values decoupled from purely utilitarian concerns. So that's that's a lot. But in uh, in other words, 
Once double entry bookkeeping becomes the universal and standardized way of keeping accounts, it legitimates decisions made by using it. Uh, so as, as Feldman and March put it in another article, a good decision maker is one who makes decisions in the way a good decision maker does. And decision makers and organizations establish their legitimacy by their use of information. Thus, the gathering and use of information in an organization is part of a performance of a decision maker or an organization trying to make decisions intelligently in a situation in which the verification of intelligence is heavily procedural and normative. It's this kind of like auto-legitimating structure. So once something, once a technique reaches the level of universality, it becomes this self-legitimating uh, like a snowball rolling down a hill, like it becomes a self-legitimating force, right? Like, and so, like I, I understand that the the quote that I read was a, a like a little bit impenetrable, but what here's what it means: everyone uses this this same system of keeping accounts. It is highly procedural and normative, as the quote says, right? The information that that system produces dictates decisions made by the organizations precisely because it is universally accepted. So why do we do things this way? Well, we do them because this is the way that everybody does them. It's the accepted way of doing things. If I, as a business owner, do not also use this system, I have a very difficult time justifying my decisions, especially if they turn out to be wrong. However, as we discussed earlier, bookkeeping is not actually a fully rational objective practice of accounting. Uh, in fact, if it like if you think about it, if it was, if it was fully objective and rational and scientific, no business would ever fail except by act of God, like in, if it was struck by lightning or something, right? And so, when people are making decisions in a business, they're performing this objectivity, they're performing rationality, they're simply following good business practices. When in actuality, a lot of the time. They're only making a prediction or blatantly acting in self-interest. Um, so like responsibility for firing somebody or closing a plant or cutting benefits or lowering standards, that seems then not to be the responsibility of the capitalist himself. The responsibility lies with the ledger. It lies with, hey, this is what the numbers are telling me. I, there's nothing. Well, I can it's do just about it. it's just another it's just another version of the argument. It's just business, which has always been yeah, the most exactly. like flimsy and infuriating sort of argument for me. But it's just like yeah. that's used as a veil to commit violence or to commit injustice or just try to get more. I mean, it's a very obvious point, but it's just sort of like, it's all part of the same scheme. <laughs> you know, it is. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you're exactly right. But I think that the, the sort of interesting thing about the argument is that what you're saying could not take place were there not a seemingly uh, objective, seemingly rational system of accounting uh, that people could point to to say that it's just business. Of course, I'm just I'm making this decision. It's just business. Look at the ledger. It's this it's this self-authorizing form of keeping track of things that allows people to make incredibly hurtful and selfish and and immoral, right? Uh, uh, like like TurboTax is the perfect example, right? Like sociopathic, as you were saying, decisions 
because, hey, that's what the ledger tells us to do, right? Like the ledger is the thing. The ledger is the mechanism that allows you to pretend there's no one responsible. Back to the matter, Muley. After what them dust has done to the land, the tenant system don't work no more. They don't even break even, much less show a profit. Why, one man and a tractor can handle 12 or 14 of these places. You just pay them a wage and take all the crop. Yeah, but uh, we couldn't do on any less than what our share is now. Well, the children ain't getting enough to eat as it is. And they're so ragged. We'd be ashamed if everybody else's children wasn't the same way. I can't help that. All I know is I got my orders. They told me to tell you to get off, and that's what I'm telling you. You mean get off my own land? Oh, don't go to blaming me. It ain't my fault. Whose fault is it? You know who owns the land, the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And who's the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company? It ain't nobody. It's a company. They got a president, ain't they? They got somebody knows what a shotgun's for, ain't they? Oh, son, it ain't his fault because the bank tells him what to do. All right. Where's the bank? Tulsa. What's the use of picking on him? He ain't nothing but the manager. And he's half crazy himself trying to keep up with his orders from the east. Then who do we shoot? Brother, I don't know. If I did, I'd tell you. I just don't know who's to blame. Well, I'm right here to tell you, mister, there ain't nobody gonna push me off my land. My grandpa took up this land 70 years ago. My pa was born here. We was all born on it. And some of us was killed on it. Uh, we gotta rate these guys, man. Or this guy. This one person. You know, fuck Scott Cook. You know, like, like he sucks. Like, I, I hate, like, entrepreneurs are great, and we're making the world better. And meanwhile, he's just ripping off poor people to make himself a billionaire. And he um, was responsible for that dark pattern shit at a certain level? Like, he was I don't think fully so. complicit? So, in a that, that's, a, that's a really great question and not something that I addressed. There is, a, there is a very shady CEO who retired six months before the ProPublica article came out and uh, there are all these glowing articles about him that came out like retiring at the top, retiring scandal free, you know, like this guy is great. He's Mr. Golden Boy. And then like, I think that ProPublica called him for a comment and he's like, yeah, we fucked this up and I'm going to get out of here so I can get another job. Um, I think that the current CEO, well, not current, but the, as of that point, current CEO um, was totally responsible for it um do i think scott cook knew about it absolutely i mean he signed off on it there's no question i don't think that he really came up with the plan but it's still he was complicit and it's deeply sketchy he's complicit for all right well what do you want to give him like a five like a five i think a five you know he's a he's a scammer he's just like a annoying startup silicon valley scammer In the final segment of our show, we always pick two billionaires that we research and become the topic for our next episode. Next time, uh, we got a roulette wheel. Chad's the man with the wheel. Chad, are you ready to spin this thing? I am. All right, let's spin. Number one is... Lee Bass, oil and investments. Oh, he's very young. 
Oh, no. No, he's not. It's just a picture from the 80s on Forbes. <laughs> he inherited, he's in, he, oh, I like that. he inherited That's- his fortune in 1959. There is a picture. I'll, I'm going to text it to you right now. There's a picture of a 23 year old guy on Forbes. Uh, That's so funny like, to me. That's yeah, so funny. He is. I mean, what? Like, so he inherited it. In, <laughs> yeah, he, he must does. have been born in 39. So he's got to be like 80. <laughs> That's amazing. He's like 80 years old. And he looks like a dude. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Oil. All right. That seems lame. That's not too exciting. Okay. I'm hoping for a big one. I'm hoping for a big one on the next one. Oh, 190, kind of high on the list. Number 190 is Janice McNair, Energy and Sports. Energy and uh, what? Oh, she is extremely old. Uh, her picture is like uh, Betty Crocker 20 years after. So we have died. two old energy people. Yeah. Well, who do you want? I'll take either one. Um, I'll take the Bass Brothers. I mean, there's four Bass Brothers. Oh, you deserve a family. Okay. Yeah, I, I never get the families. All right, um, you, it's your family time. And uh, I'll I'll do I'll do Janice McNair. I guess that's it. I guess we just got to thank people for listening and ask people to please write a review if they have some time. That's always a nice thing. Yeah, please please do that. Um, send us a message. Yeah. Shoot us an email at zero sum empire gmail dot com. We Reach love out. getting uh, we love getting little notes uh, from people. Um, yeah, we like to engage. And. Uh, The next time you hear our voices, Chad will be a dad. A Chad dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's exciting, man. It's definitely going to happen. Well, my wife did tell me about the longest pregnancy ever recorded today. It was was 13 months. Yeah. That is nightmarish. I don't want to hear about that. That's... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody.